You're listening to Mapleview Community Church Podcast. This will conclude our messages on living with the end in mind. It, it is with a, I, I'm going to say a heavy heart that I bring this last message. And so if you're gathered with us for the very first time or watching online, you're going to have to endure maybe one of the harder messages that I have had to share in the 26 years of being here. I grew up not in a Christian home. I grew up where, with songs and bands that kind of reveled in the idea of hell. Hell's bells, ACDC, to hell with the devil, raise a little hell. Songs that would get your feet moving and pumping. And I, I had little understanding of what that meant. Hell. It's just a, can become a catchphrase. But it is derived from a very serious source. And its picture is very serious. I'm not sure how many of us actually think about hell. I know it's not talked a lot about. And I understand why. On July 8th, 1741, in in Enfield, Connecticut, an Anglican minister named Jonathan Edwards preached possibly the most famous sermon on hell since the time of the apostles. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He shared that message, and it was fuel to what would be known by historians as the Great Awakening. Thirteen colonies, British colonies of the time, that would later become the United States of America, would would respond and there would be what would be called a revival. And part of that revival came from Jonathan Edwards' message and it would be documented. You wonder why the U.S. is called a Christian nation. It's because of moments of time throughout its history that revival took place and some serious messages. Jonathan Edwards was focusing in the 1700s on God getting sinners to recognize that there would one day come a judgment by the living God. Jonathan, John chapter 12 says, but everyone who rejects me and my teachings will be judged on the last day. There's, there's scripture is going to be filled with pictures and moments of time where judgment will occur. Out of scripture, we know that hell is real. A place of perpetual torment for those who reject the Lord. Perpetual, ongoing, never ending. And I don't want us to ignore the strong words of warning that Jesus gives. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, in our English translation, we translate the word, two words from Greek into the word hell. The first is the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a location in southeast Jerusalem known as the Valley of Hinnon. And it was a place, a smoldering pit, where at one time the cries of little children are heard when sacrificed into the fiery arms of Moloch by some of the kings of Judah. There has been really destructive, demonic, terrible things that have gone on throughout mankind. 
It then became a cursed place where dead animals would be burned alongside the bodies of unburied dead criminals. Over time, Valley of Hinnon, Gehenna, would be associated with damnation in the land of the dead, a burning lake of fire. The second word is Tartarus. It's another name for hell, translated. Tartarus only appears once in scripture in 2 Peter where it says God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Which angels sinned? The, the ones that fall Lucifer. But sent them to Tartarus, putting them in the chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Tartarus is a subterranean abyss, the bottomless pit. You've probably heard over years different moments in the uh, different things regarding the bottomless pit. Fit only for demons, but now also for the unrepentant dead. See, hell is far worse than simply being separated by God or from God's presence, as some would suggest now. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, rejecting Jesus has profound consequences. Revelation chapter 14 I'm using these, some of these verses. I'll get to the narrative in just a moment because it establishes out of God's word. They will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night. I read a story regarding an American troop ship prior to the D-Day landing that soldiers crowded around the chaplain asking, do you believe in hell? The chaplain said, I do not. Well, then, will you leave now? For if there is no hell, we do not need you. And if there is, we are led astray. So let me say for the record, I cannot prove to you that hell exists I'll have to trust in the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in that regard. But no one here either can prove to me that hell does not exist, an equally important rationale. And there could be little doubt in our woke culture, secular psychologists, prophets, professors, scientific pundits, are never going to agree with the teachings that Christ taught his disciples. They're never going to. Never. If you are a person of faith now, you, they, they will never believe and have room for the original sin. Our woke culture won't have room for original sin. Immaculate conception will be a story. The incarnation, Jesus coming at Christmas in the flesh. The resurrection from the dead. They're not going to believe in the rapture, the return, or the final judgment. So you can be sure that the deconstructionists of our day are not going to give place for any possibility of eternal punishment. It won't be in their worldview. But that should not surprise the believer, the follower of Christ. Cancel culture is hard at work refuting every claim the Word of God has in it. It refutes the need for purity. Marriage is no longer between man and woman. Creation versus evolution. Those are things that no one's going to agree to. It's only going to be found in the bride of Christ's teachings. If you looked at the five major world religions, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, 
Buddhism, Judaism, Judaism, you're going to find if you collectively just roughly, I mean, I did some rough calculations and as I was researching, that about 6 billion of 8 billion, 8 billion people, those of the, of the five major ones, would have some um, thought of afterlife. Each would believe in an afterlife. But regardless of worldview or religious worldview, belief, it's an absolute and undisputed truth. This is undisputed. Everyone will agree to this one, that one day you're going to leave this world behind. Undisputed. In the moment you breathe your last breath, every one of you will discover the answer to the single greatest mystery of man's entire existence. Does life extend beyond the grave? Whatever you believe, no matter how sincere, will be at that moment outside of your control. You will have no control over it. So in the word of God, I have put my trust over the years, not just in this subject, but for all things. Living with the end in mind is very important then. You want to get this part right. As a Bible-believing Christ follower who holds to the inspiration of Scripture, at which I do, many do not, there are more than 400 Scriptures having a connection with the place of eternal uh, torment and as much as I would want to be, like it to be different, as much as I would do not like this subject myself, I can only see through the teachings of Scripture of it being very clear regarding hell being a real place. And even though many in the world over would choose not to believe in hell, which include a number growing of Christian clergy across the world, I do. If, if I'm wrong... I have lost nothing. But if you trust the word of God like I do, then there is a hell and you've lost more than everything finding out it exists. Remember, the Bible warns of false teachers teaching only of itching to itching ears, wanting to hear and denying sound doctrine. There's those that, like that can't be true. It's just awful. It's just too terrible. It's too beyond... There's going to be people that just don't want to hear it, and many of you may be in that category. But to just be clear, my aim is not to wave a finger at anybody. I'm so conscious of not wanting to, or become a moral authority over others. That's not my intent here. I oppose no single individual in this place. For I understand at a core level all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just for a certain person it's for all of us it also brings me no pleasure of any kind to talk about this subject it's not a laughing matter or a moment to revel in some kind of warped form of revenge delighting in those who have mocked the truth and scoffed at faith and somehow you're going to get your just rewards and just wait I, there's no there's no glory in that my only motive and really I, I, I've thought this through my only motive is helping people avoid the road to hell that I know is real by aligning myself with the book of Jude where he says, save others by snatching them from the fire. I believe living with the end in mind, this series is a necessary conversation to have with our church. I'm not trying to proclaim it to the world aloud, and I know it's online today. For the way in which you perceive your eternal destination will most certainly shape the way you live today and all your tomorrows. So my title I'm calling is The Last Ride. 
a narrative of hell. I'm going to allude to more than 75 of the 400 scriptures in there. I could not possibly have the time to put them all in. And I'm not trying to suggest that my narrative is accurate in every detail. My narrative is a conjecture created from my mind connecting many scriptures from God's word. My attempt is not just to be a cold doctrine, but to give you vivid imagery, paint a possible picture that's out of the inspired word of God on the Christian doctrine of hell. But I'm fairly certain that is actually far worse than anything that I could even begin to write. So I give one more time. Just a caution. If there are children here that are susceptible to bad dreams or, or things, I'm, I'm not here to cause fear or worry. I'm, I'm here. So please be mindful of that if your child stays. So I set the stage for the last ride with Jesus' teaching on the parable of the Son of Man coming to sit on his throne and judging nations. Let me read it from Matthew chapter 25 where he separates the goats from the sheep. Again, Jesus' words. This is going to be which we trust in, Jesus' words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But to the goats on the left, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, and, though, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, remember, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. <clears throat> A narrative. Life on earth. I had gone to church once or twice when I was a boy with my mother and my grandmother, my father and grandfather never thought much need for church. They believed in a God, and that's all that mattered to them. Any God. Grandma had read to me as a child from the Bible, the heroes. There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Noah, Samson, and David. There were also the handmaidens of God, Esther and Ruth, Deborah, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the most famous of all, Jesus of Nazareth. I remembered their names but over time forgot their message. As I grew older and wiser, the fables from the Bible grew silent and irrelevant. I no longer believed the fictitious stories of the Bible. The higher education I received from expert teachers in high school, speaking on the inaccurate translations, the scribal errors made over the centuries by the authors, and it was explained even in greater detail by my atheist university professors, and they had extinguished any childlike faith I once had. As I grew older, the pursuit of personal satisfaction and monetary gain became my sole focus. The love of money became my God. Earthly recognition and status was what I sought after, to be rich and famous and do whatever I pleased, my, my heart's desire. My motivation based on the many influencers I followed on the social media and the powerful company slogans that had so permeated my life. Just do it. Think different. I'm loving it, or my dad's 
all-time favorite, Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. These were but a few of the mantras regarding living life to the fullest that I had adopted. Impossible is nothing. Sounded godlike to me. Whatever I wanted, whatever I thought, whatever I felt was the, was the temple I worshipped at. I had no moral absolutes because there was none. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Oh, from time to time, I would be reminded of God's amazing grace. The preacher on TV, or when driving by the church filled with cars on a Sunday. But I did not believe in sin. I didn't believe in the devil, and certainly I didn't believe in hell. Anyways, I was a good person, and I never hurt anybody, or at least not intentionally. In fact, many would admire and respect me for all the good things I had done in the community. If there was a God, he would see my good works, and I would just be fine. And then one moment, out of nowhere, darkness. Hebrews 9.27. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And then from somewhere unknown to me, I felt like I was hovering, watching a line of black cars moving slowly along the road with a lonely black hearse revealing to all watching my last ride. My time had come so quickly. It was like a mist, a flower quickly fading, a mere vapor now vanished. As I took my last breath on earth, the next breath I took was in a bleak, lonely, putrid-smelling cell that left a chill inside my being. I had thought, believed when I died, that would be the end of it. But I was fully conscious and alert in every way. I, I believed I would come to know more, reduced to nothing, only a corpse in a grave, that I'd have no sense of time or space. If from dust I came, then dust I would return, and I was pretty sure of that. Back to nothingness. Some would call that annihilation. And that was my belief. I would simply cease to exist. I was, after all, a product of evolution, a highly evolved animal. And being only an animal, I lived like an animal, satisfying every lust, every desire. What would you expect? Why care about being moral? Only ignorant bigots and pushy, deceived, Bible-believing Christians believed in a heaven and hell, so righteous and self-righteous in their rules, obedience. There would be no condemnation or judgment for me. The punishment for my sin would be extinction, and that would be no, was no problem for me. I lived on earth for ple- pure pleasure, denying God's existence, rebelling against any moral code. It did not really matter if I simply was no longer. But now... Something terrifying in that bleak moment began to grow. A dreaded and frightening realization was coming over me. I was becoming quickly aware that something was drastically wrong. For I was conscious, very conscious, and aware of everything that was happening. Panic turned to frenzied fear. Oh, dear God, could I have been wrong? Could I have been the one deceived? My thoughts raced vividly to the Sunday school class I attended as a child in the church my mother had occasionally taken to me to. My grandmother's stories rushed back to my mind. My thoughts raced to the son of the living God, Jesus, and the relationship I had rejected my whole life. My dread grew in the pitch darkness as I now feared deeply what that could mean. I was wrong, altogether wrong. Could hell be real? In that instance, my eyes, the eyes that had been blinded to the truth by the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, were open. 
Open now to the full and horror of the truth. Satan, the master deceiver, the father of lies, and the God of this age, who masquerades as an angel of life, has played me for the fool. Then suddenly, I heard a frightening and thunderous sound that caught my first glimpse of a heavily lathered demon-like beast running toward me. Almost instantly, I heard the sickening noise of the creature's laboring hot breath on my neck. Then came a grotesque and foul stench making me want to vomit and jolting me to the sick realization coming into focus of rejecting Jesus as Lord. There was the, then there was the unbearable heat. I wanted to pass out as the heat continued to rise and sweat poured like blood out from my skin. As my eyes became accustomed to the darkness and I saw clearly the noise and the smell was coming from an ashen pale horse with fire and smoke coming from its nostrils whose color mirrored the sickly pastiness of my own corpse. But worse still, there sitting on the monstrous beast was one whose name was Death, the gruesome pale rider with darkened, sunken, red glowing eyes and was the fourth horseman of the apocalypse that the Bible had talked about. As I stared at the hideous monster that seemed neither dead nor alive, half human, half beast, I knew that whatever it was, I was sure there was nothing in it but hatred and violence for me. At that nauseating instant, a despair filled my entire being, for I knew that I gazed upon the terrible and frightful face of the angel of death. The killer of children in Moses' day and the killer of children in Herod's day. His repulsive demon face was amplified by a terrible-looking pitchfork covered in blood along with the sickle he held for the souls of the damned. He stepped off the grisly pale mount and pulled out from under his insipid, ghastly gray robe a set of cold, black, jagged iron shackles, both for the hands and for the feet of me, his newly arrived eternal prisoner. There is no doubt in my mind who the fetters of affliction were meant for. My scoffing, sneering, and mocking of Jesus and the evangelist, the local church pastor, even the lady who handed me a track on the street was no longer funny. It would only serve now to make the shackles of iron tighter and heavier around me. I was on my way to the depth of hell, being led down to the chambers of death, where every vile demon was imprisoned and now waiting for me. I'd never known unending fear and terror like this before. As the heat continued to rise, making my very blood begin to boil and the first torments of hell began to take its effect, my heart raced, my lungs filled with fire as my soul began to undergo a transformation and the terrible, indescribable sufferings of this dark place surrounded me. My tongue swelled within my mouth and I longed for but a moment of pity for just one drop of water to touch my tongue. But there is no water in hell and no reprieve came. My being continuously felt the terrible burning sweat pouring from my pores along with the putrid smell of sulfur that filled my lungs. The cool breezes of earth that I had once known were all gone. The sounds of the songbirds, the green trees, the flowers from my deck were nothing but a distant memory. In a frenzied panic, I screamed at my tormentors in hope it was some ghastly nightmare. Where am I? Where are you taking me? Where am I going? In reply came the voice of a thousand hissing snakes to the final judgment and then to the chasm of Gehenna, the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I'm taking you to the depths of hell. But I exclaimed, I don't believe in hell. Neither do I, the writer of death replied in a whispered laughing rasp. With that, he mounted again his beast and taking the reins in one hand and pulling the shackles in the other, he spurred the pale horse, pale frothing beast that resembled a horse forward. 
As the angel of death cruelly spurred forward his horse, I was jerked by the iron fetters that bound my hands and feet and dragged further and further down into the darkness of the abyss known as Tartarus, the pit of hell. I could not see one thing in this valley of darkness, but as I descended deeper and deeper in Tartarus, I began to hear the echoes and groans of those in hopeless agony, enduring who knows what punishment. Soon what began as a few yells of the frantic turned to the shrieking schemes of hundreds, no thousands, or could it even be millions, of what could only be other damned souls. All the fools who concluded that sin and hell was but a man-made myth. As I crashed through the darkness and my body cried out in pain as I was dragged over jagged rocks, my thoughts, if a rational thought could be possible, were overwhelmed at my stupidity on earth. And I cried out begging the horse's rider for more, one more chance. But no chance would come. More than, maybe then, a brief moment of mercy, of rest, only to hear the chilling, raspy reply from the death angel, There is no mercy and no rest in hell. There is never any rest in hell. I attempted to shut my eyes but could not then, but could not and then shuddered at the dread of my future state while at the same time my conscience reminded me of how I laughed at the idea of hell, just Jesus and God. Then came the moment when the writer stopped. But this was not out of compassion for there is no compassion in him or in hell either. With that abrupt halt, I found myself surrounded by hordes of demonic creatures making wheezing noises that came, then came the noises of weeping and sheer agony in the her, and, and then heard the grinding and gnashing of their teeth. Vicious red hot talons torn to my scabbed and tormented remains for what began on earth as a wide road leading to my destruction followed by the pale horse and its rider has now become a literal narrow ugly dark pit of misery and pain. At this awful point, I saw human bodies, other sinners who had rejected Jesus, falling past me from some unknown cliff far above, and as they sped by, they began to glow orange like that of hot embers from a fire, screaming hysterically as they descended into the darkness. Help me, help me, mercy, mercy, only to hear the echo return of too late, too late, a never-ending cycle of fiery, burning torment. Then before me was an unclothed, naked, demonic being that can be described only as evil incarnate. He held a bow and had a quiver that was filled with the arrows of pestilence and disease and sickness and infection. The stench and decay emanating from the creature was nausea and was choking me in my throat even more. I didn't know it at the moment, but I presently stood before the destroying angel that the Bible names in Revelation Abaddon in the Hebrew and Apollyon in the Great. He was from an undetermined, he was for an undetermined amount of time the fallen angel given the keys to the shaft of the abyss the one who terrorizes the realm of the unrighteous dead and continually punishes the lost soul of Tartarus. His only role was to terrorize and wait for his final judgment that he, along with all the other hideous condemned beings, both fallen angels and the disobedient wicked from Adam's race, now awaited. Then all-consuming and never-ending fires of Gehenna, also known as the Bible, is the second death. Everyone, including the rider and the pale horse and the hordes of menacing demons, feared the angel known as Abaddon. Every wicked principality and power, every demigod of the world, Moloch, Baal, Asherah, Mammon, feared the one known as Abaddon. From Revelations chapter 9, verse 11. They had as a king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. What fleshly pleasures or earthly indulgences could have made this moment remotely worthwhile? All the pleasure of sin had now faded, and the worst of hell was still to come. Now I began to experience even greater tortures and torment. 
It's all beyond our human imagination and comprehension. It can never be adequately described. The entrance was long and, and narrow past that was instantly hot like a furnace, very low, dark, and continually closing in on me, making me, on top of all other things, very claustrophobic. The ground was covered in withering venomous snakes, biting assorted vipers along with every type of stinging incense. A boiling lava and liquid saturated the space and was exceedingly foul in order and with all types of loathsome venomous creatures clinging to the sides of the rock walls. Grave-like caverns were carved in the sides of the walls of the rock with, within this descending tunnel and each were, made more, each were where more damned souls chained in the shackles of iron, moaning in pain and remorse for the decision on earth to harden their heart to Jesus. The horrible presence of Abaddon was always a close proximity. There was not one evidence at all of anything lovely, no evidence of a God or feelings of love, no peace, no joy, no kindness, no gentleness. Just always the perpetual inner ache of heart for all those once I cared for and all the beauty of earth's totally and foreverly lost and without ever hope of ever being found again. And these are just the abiding generalizations of the damned. For continually as time goes by, it gets worse and worse, so as you can never get used to the punishment. Each soul seemed to be going through indescribable suffering related to the individual sin and cruelty on earth. I cannot tell you for sure, but there look to be like great millstones around the necks of many lost souls and tartars, possibly to those who inflicted hurt on children. My conscious mind also became another nagging enemy. O soul, body, you now pay the price of forsaking God's voice, your lustful delights, your selfish gain, your gluttonous ways, and all that you granted yourself in this world, but was opposed to the word of God is now your undoing. God did not send me here. I chose hell when I rejected Jesus. Abomination after abomination, you lived in the body. You went to rallies promoting sinful ways and ignored widows and orphans. You reveled in adulterous affairs and forgot the hungry. You were fiery in your pride with your self-proclaimed words of wisdom, but cold in your actions and loving in your behavior. You were lukewarm like vomit in the mouth of your creator, and your time to depart earth has arrived. No longer will you hear of the loving kindness or of faithfulness. Your secrets, your self-righteousness, your unconfessed sin have made you no less than whitewashed sepulchers. Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, 42. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All this and more awaits those bound for Tartarus and you have not even arrived at the great white throne judgment at this point. And the moment you will see the awesome wrath and fury of Jesus, the Son of Man, staring at you with his blazing eyes of fire, and hear him say with a thundering voice, Depart from me to the fires of Gehenna and eternal damnation. I never knew you. That will be the very last time you will ever be in the presence of Almighty God and Creator. In that moment, you realize the punishment of being banished from Jesus forever. From the one who so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For many, Tartarus and Gehenna has just become a fable. Old Testament, fire and brimstone, God of judgment that we don't like to admit to or don't want to even consider. 
But if you were a born-again, Bible-following, Christ-disciple, you will not experience any of this. You will not know the angel of death, but only the angel of the Lord. If we are only hopeful in this life, we are to be pitied. But if the Bible is true and your faith is real and you've genuinely given your heart to Christ, you are free from this eternal punishment. You will never experience it. It's only my imagination with scriptures connected that I put this together. But it's heavy. And I truly mean with all my heart. It's just to bring you to awareness, not to judge you or condemn anybody. It's something as followers of Christ that we need to understand because it shapes our life. It shapes how we respond to people, to places, to things. It should radically transform what you do and how you live on this world. It is a fleeting moment of time for us. And all we have is this moment to make it count for God. All the good things of the Bible are there for our enjoyment. All of them. But let's not forget the reason why he came was not to give us a happy, joyful life filled with stuff and things and it was to give us eternity. Let's not be distracted in these days. Let's set about our hearts doing the things that God wants us to do. I, I, I actually don't even know how to end a message like this except that if you've never given your life to Jesus, Would you consider it? You can't afford to be wrong here. I'm not going to ask you for anything this morning. Maybe that's wrong of me to do, but I want you to, maybe in the quietness of your own home, tonight, tomorrow, as you consider some of these thoughts, some of the ideas, some of the scriptures, to bowing your knee and saying, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. I want to live for you forever. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. Not because of this message, but because of your grace. The word of God tells us your compassions fail not. And there's new mercies every morning in you. But that only is for this time on earth. The decisions we make now have implications to eternity. I pray, Lord Jesus, that the precious blood of your Son would cleanse us, forgive us, that we would be, fix our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith, and that genuinely you've gone to prepare a place for us in a much better place. Lord, we exalt in you this morning. I pray that somehow these words would be used by the Holy Spirit to bring anyone outside the kingdom of God into your presence today.
I'll leave that with you and them, Lord Jesus. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. You're listening to Maple View Community Church Podcast. Mm-hmm.